Well, the Bible says, carry each other's burdens and you will fulfill the law of Christ. One of the great human capacities is the ability to know what someone else is thinking at the same time, read their mind, and to know what they need, and then to slip in and provide what they need and then slip out unnoticed. There's somebody in this room maybe who knows how to read your mind, somebody in your life at least who knows exactly what you need even when you don't know it. For most of us, that is our spouse. But once in a while, we find someone else that we work with, that having worked with them a while, they know exactly how to read our mind. Some years ago, I was sitting in a board meeting, uh, and I was halfway through it. I was leading meetings back then, which I don't do anymore because I'm awful at it. And I was halfway through, and my assistant, uh, the administrative assistant, she's about 75 years old, and, and she's sitting right off to my left, and partway through the meeting, I just started losing focus. Board members were talking, and I couldn't make sense of anything that they were saying. And I was half trying to figure them out and half trying to not embarrass myself. And all of a sudden, Stella just took a note, and she wrote on the note, do you need to eat? <laughs> and slid it over like that. Never even looked at me, just kind of slid it over like that. When uh, the only food that the brain recognizes is sugar, doesn't recognize anything else. And so when the sugar's down, you get incoherent. Some of you think I preach with low blood sugar all the time, but <laughs> that in fact was what was happening at that moment. And so I just looked over and I sort of nodded. Yeah. And she leaned in as if on cue, and she said, you know, this raises something that I've wanted to talk to this board about for a long time. And she took the meeting over. <laughs> and I thought, this is a perfect time to go chow. And so I got up, slipped out, just started pouring food down. And when I was done, I came back in, sat down, and almost on cue, when I sat down, she said, well, I think that pretty much handles that. Now, Steve, is there anything else that you want to talk about? <laughs> it was just beautiful. Oh, man, this ability to just know what someone is thinking and what they're dealing with right now, be able to just kind of slide over and provide it and then just on cue slide out. I don't think I ever mentioned it to her after that. I didn't need to. We knew it. The only time I mentioned it was at her funeral. I said I could tell you lots of other stories of the way Stella helped us. But this, for me, was one of the greatest things she ever did. It was the ability to empathize with what someone else is feeling. I think that's getting harder today because of technology. I think we are constantly interrupted with layers of technology that teaches us to stay focused to what is on the screen until we cannot see what is in the eyes. Am I the only one that is at least somewhat annoyed when talking to someone, they suddenly put their eyes down because somebody just sent them a text? Come to Jesus, church. Does that happen to you? Wait a minute. Are you one of those who do that? The second the text goes on, you feel like you have to respond to that text as if somehow the person texting is more interesting than the one that you're talking to. You'd never say that, but that sort of has that 
feel. We can multitask, we say, but we're learning we actually can't. We switch task, which means we can't give ourselves fully to any one thing at a time because we're always pulling off onto something else. Now, I know there's some in the room think you can pull that off, but we know now through neuroscience that you can't. We know that you can't fully devote yourself to one thing until you can concentrate on that one thing. And every time you're pulled off, you break that concentration and your concentration has to start over. Aside from that, we are inundated with layers upon layers of needs and um, uh, uh, tragedies all around the world. It used to be that there were one or two things that you could give yourself to, but now there's seemingly everything from sex trafficking to domestic abuse to child poverty to homelessness, and we want to solve it all, and it's all coming up on our social media, and we want to get involved in this. And so we try to spread a little bit of ourselves to every one of these things. We can't fully give ourselves to any one thing. It seems that in today's volatile, fragile society, if there was a community that knew how to give themselves fully with sacrifice and duration, length of time to one thing or one person, it would make a profound influence on a culture where everyone, virtually everyone, is trying to find ways to get noticed. It helps me uh, to think of empathy really as kind of the end of a continuum. It's not whether you have it or not, it's how much of it you have. On this side of it, on the lighter shade of empathy, think of charity. Charity is simply signing the check or signing the petition or clicking like or retweeting something. Uh, It's giving on your way out the door It's the Salvation Army on your way into the store. I don't mean to minimize this because through charity, we are able to do a lot of things, you guys. Things move because of the money that people continuously give. But the key thing about charity is it's more a commitment to a cause than it is to the person in that cause. I want to stop poverty. I want to send that person to college. I want to evangelize China. I want to end homelessness. And so we give in order to solve the problem. But we do this largely devoid of contact with the people that we're helping. We don't often know the ones that we're helping. The next shade over is what I'm calling compassion. A lot of what passes for compassion today is actually charity. It's twice removed support, but in compassion, your heart actually starts to feel what the other person feels. So, I'm a Lions fan. I know pain. (laughs) And so when something happens, you can get up immediately and you are just fully invested, feeling everything the person on the field felt, only you're not on the field. But all of the emotions are there. I mean, the loss feels just as devastating and the excitement just as I, only you don't get paid. My wife will often go to bed while my son and I finish the game. And when I come to bed, she'll say, did they win? 
because she knows the kind of night it's going to be. That's compassion. That's sympathy. Feeling alongside of someone who's feeling the pain. But there then is one called empathy, which is greater still. Empathy is like a collective yawn. Someone yawns. And without even trying, you yawn. Lori always goes three times. I'm going to pay for this. And without even trying, I go. She yawns. I yawn like a lion. Once we were in the car, she was in the back. We were with friends. She was in the back. And all of a sudden, partway through the drive, I yawned. And I just said, wait a minute. Honey, did you just yawn? She goes, yep. When I didn't even see it. That's empathy. Heard two old people sitting in a nursing home, been married for years. One of them looks at the screen and goes, wait a second, isn't that, um, yeah, dude, what's his face? His spouse said, no, 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 it's, um, um, what's his name? And the first one goes, oh, you're right. That's empathy. It's the ability to just read the other person's mind and to step right into it as if what was happening to them was happening to you. At the same time, you can live your whole life and never find somebody that close. Where do we get that? I think we get it from God. I do. Jesus said, they have seen and hated both me and my father. The people themselves would have denied this. They would have said they hated Jesus, but they didn't hate his father. But in Jesus' mind, to hate him was the same thing as hating his father. There was no way to hate him without hating his father because the two of them were bound up inside of the other so that what you were doing to the one, you were doing to the other and at the same time. So while Jesus suffers, it's not really possible for the father to feel sorry for him. He, he can't do this. He can only feel what the son feels. He can't just pray for him, encourage him as if the cross were all his problem and then disengage. Can't do it. One of them is wrapped up inside of the other, so they feel. I think this is where our capacity to empathize with people comes from. In the church, we call this carrying the cross. Living gospel carries crosses. It carries our own cross, and it carries somebody else's. There's a scene in the New Testament that you're very familiar with. We'll put it on the screen. It's the scene of Jesus that is on his way uh, to the cross. According to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three say the same thing. The day went like this. Early that morning, 
When the day began, the Jews had a tradition of releasing a prisoner. And so Pilate went before the crowd and he offered the crowd the opportunity to release one of its prisoners or to release Jesus. And while Pilate was actually vouching for Jesus's innocence, it was Barabbas that they wanted. Now, the Gospels say that Barabbas was guilty of murder and insurrection. He had started an uprising in the streets, and then he'd killed somebody in the middle of the uprising. So he was in prison because he deserved it, and he was really supposed to die. But what the crowd said that day was, give us Barabbas. And so Luke says, and so Pilate gave them the one who was in prison for insurrection and murder and surrendered to their will, Jesus. Another character in this is the soldiers themselves. The Gospel of John said that the soldiers grabbed Jesus and compelled him to carry the cross. Now the cross was simply the cross beam. The soldiers would put the the patibulum on your back and strap it to you and make you go through the street under the weight of the thing that would kill you while the soldiers themselves hurried on ahead and put the upright post into the ground which they would reuse for future executions. And so the soldiers were there foisting onto Jesus a cross that really wasn't supposed to be his. It should have been Barabbas's. He was the guy that should have had it that day. And while he is going, he stumbles under the weight of this. And the soldiers look and notice a fella named Simon from Cyrene. It's in North Africa. And he happens to be there for the Passover. He probably doesn't even know what's happening. And he is forced to come in and to get underneath that cross beam and to help Jesus get it back up so he can finish the journey. And while Simon the Cyrene is helping Jesus to get back under that load, Luke says there's a crowd, a large crowd that is following behind him and they're mourning and they're wailing. And as I'm looking at this picture, it's sort of etched in my mind, look at it again and try to ask yourself if I were to put me in that scene, where would I be? Now it's easy to say that you would be Simon of Cyrene, but would you really, if you slow the characters down and you isolate each character and ask, what is the character doing at that time? Which character's actions most closely resemble my own? So there are soldiers who inflict crosses onto other people. And crosses are not simply instruments of execution. Crosses represent abandonment, loss, shame and disgrace, profound injustice. When you look at the cross like this, it's easy to see how Israel had its own cross in the Old Testament when they went into exile. They suffered injustice, and there was shame and disgrace. There was profound loss. There was feelings of abandonment. So I think there are people in our lives, and not all of them look like soldiers, who inflict injustice and shame 
and disgrace and abandonment and loss onto other people. They don't always look like terrorists. They don't always go to prison. Some of them are good middle-class white people with deep prejudices who put crosses onto other people. Some of them are middle-class men and women who abandon their families. Some of them are businesses that fleece the poor. Some of them are religious leaders who violate the trust. You can't always see a soldier when you're looking at them, but you know they're there because every time they leave, somebody else is under a cross. So you have to ask yourself, am I them? Have I knowingly or unknowingly inflicted these things onto other people? God help me. Then there's Jesus who gets under it and just starts to lift it. And then there's Barabbas who's supposed to lift it, but he gets away. Am I one of him? Do I always get out of stuff I should be under? Do I have a way of being in the midst of stuff and none of it gets on me? None of it really sticks to me? I can just off on somebody else. And then there's the crowd who follows at a distance and feels sorry for the one under the cross. Is that me? Do I sympathize well? Or am I Simon of Serene who actually gets under the thing and starts to help lift it? Simon comes to the day not expecting to be part of anything. And as, as I freeze the picture in my mind, you guys, I could easily imagine Simon stepping into this drama and turning to the soldiers and telling them how unjust they are and how wrong this is. Or I can see him inflicting pain on someone else, but if he doesn't do this, he just quietly gets under somebody else's injustice and loss and shame and abandonment and helps them lift it. One of the profound differences, I think, between the resistance today and the resistance of some years ago, I'm going to sound like an old man now, is that the resistance years ago wasn't angry. And so much of the resistance today is. But we're finding, God help us, that anger does not work the righteousness of God. 
that one can be persecuted without being a prophet. That maybe the real genius of the church historic is they found a way to speak when they could. And then when the soldiers were no longer listening, they just got under the cross and helped lift it. They didn't feel like they had to write everything. They just suffered alongside of people. And when they did this, the world watched and they were impressed. Because the truth is, church, sometime before you leave this world, something's gonna get you. And when it does, what you want is a body like that around you. Am I right? How do we get that place? There are two verses before us this morning and they work together. The first verse in Matthew 5 said, blessed are you when you mourn for you will be comforted. And the other verse says in 2 Corinthians, and when you are comforted, then you will be able to take the comfort you received and you will be able to comfort others. But make no mistake about it. You cannot comfort others until you yourself have received that comfort. I'll say that in slow motion. You cannot give what you don't have. And you will not have it until you can stay in the morning. Blessed are those who suffer injustice, shame, loss, and abandonment. And don't hurry through it. Blessed are they when they sit down in it and absorb it. My tendency when I hit one of these seasons, you guys, is I don't tell anybody. Because I don't want to be one of them guys who need somebody else to come in and help them. I want to handle my business. And so I tend to keep all this stuff to myself. And then after it passes, and it always does, it makes for a great testimony. But I don't like to find people to help me when I'm in the midst of a crisis. Am I alone or do I have a witness? And then when it is clear that the crisis will not pass, I like to blame people. I like to prove my innocence by telling how I didn't deserve this, but it happened anyway. And if this person or that person would have handled their business, we would not be in this situation. Do I still have a witness? I choose other responses besides mourning. I'd rather do anything than mourn. Churches don't mourn well. We don't. So when we get to church and people are happy and you're not there yet, it feels almost like mockery to some of you. 
can't do this. This is fake. This is plastic. No, it's just that not everybody's where you're at. But churches as a whole don't tend to slow down for people that are mourning. Two things I know about this as I read about crosses in the Old Testament and in the New. One is that the answer to this always comes in the form of a promise. Let me say that again. Whenever we go into this season in our lives, the first instinct we all have is to try and make sense of this. Why is this happening? Even though understanding why it happens will not take the problem away, there is this human desire to bring meaning to what is pure chaos. I have learned, I have found that the answer to crosses is not in understanding. It does not occur in the intellect. Crosses shatter our illusion that we have power over our own future. They unmask the powerlessness to provide for our own security. They make us purely vulnerable. I can't fight that with the intellect. The only way out is to cling to the promise of God. God has said things long ago and these things are still collectible and I can't see how that could possibly be true, but I'm going to define what is happening to me by the realities of God's promise. I'm not going to interpret his promise by what is happening to me. So the first thing I say to you is, God has made promises that you can cash in. You maybe can't cash them today, but he had said things to you, and when you find one, you have to hold tenaciously to those things because nothing else can save you. And the second thing is that his promise almost always comes in the form of a person or a community. His promise is never a statement. It's never a power. It's not usually a miracle from beyond. It usually just comes in the form of a community. Let me show you what this looks like, and then I'm going to close. About four years ago, our church suffered the loss of one of our dear friends, members, <clears throat> in a tragic accident. He was in a trench and the trench collapsed. Jason was also in the trench. He survived. Ross did not. I got the call while I was touring House of Hope. We had just finished putting it together and partway through the tour, they called the phone and said, you need to get to the hospital like right now. When I got there, there was a couple people that, <clears throat> that were already there. They had flown a team in from Fort Washington, from Fort Wayne to, to work on Ross. They worked for 45 minutes while we waited until they finally confirmed that what we feared was true. He was gone. I remember walking out of the emergency room that night thinking to myself, I have seen the worst thing ever, and I'd seen a lot. I have seen the most violent thing I have ever seen, and I've seen a lot. But church, 
<clears throat> through the body of Christ, I started to see the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. For right there around the wound, the body of Christ started to circle that family and care for that family like you would not believe. I got a call that night from someone at midnight and said, everybody's worried about one thing. I'm worried about you. Are you going to make it? By the next morning, they had already begun to go to the house. <clears throat> one family in the city, not part of college church, brought in their equipment, even closed and finished the trench. Other members from college church did what church people always do. They sent food, lots of it, and they wrote cards. Some people from college church sat in the house because it was such a high-profile death, they were afraid that predators would come into the house while people were gone. Other people in the church got busy working to bring the family back home. Some people in the church surrounded them and helped them deal with the legal matters at Pro Prince, a place where Ross used to own. Somebody else in the church got busy and started making telephone calls so that all these layers of legal issues could be dealt with by someone who actually knew law. There was layer upon layer upon layer of people in our church that were active at that time. I have never seen anything like it in my life. I've reflected on it dozens of times, and I've thought, how is it in the midst of death you can see something so alive and active? Let me pause for a minute and preach for 30 seconds. You cannot experience this life in vitality in the local church until you are part of that local church. This does not happen in morning worship services. No. This happens in relationships as people find each other through the week in the many different classes and groups and layers in a local church. Some of you are here for a short time and you will move on. And where you move, you will have to engage a church at that level for people to find you in that time. It will always be relationships. It will never be attendance that does these things. I'm done preaching. I said to Karen this week, I said, what did the body of Christ give you that you lost? She said, faith. Faith. She said, when this happens, you start asking all kinds of questions. Why, you start questioning things you were sure you believed. But who do you ask them to? Who's close enough that can actually absorb those things? And she said, it was the body of Christ who got around me and listened to me and prayed with me. She talked about uh, ladies of the night in college church. I thought, are they even saved? There's a group of women from college church who the night that it happened created a calendar and went over to the house and stayed in the house every night for the first two months so she didn't have to be alone. And this is how some of the conversations take place. This is a remarkable 
level of care. <clears throat> Phil Stevenson, 18 months ago, tragically lost his wife coming back from Wabash. And I saw the same thing. The next morning, when I heard about it and drove to Fort Wayne, Lutheran, filled in intensive care, Sharon gone, I started to see again this same live body of Christ come alive. Just like a body, it surrounds the wound and it starts to care. There were people that drove up there, tons of people. Phil says, I hardly remember him because he was not always with it. Don't mean that in a negative way. People went and sat with him. They brought him food. They sat with him while his family took a break. They took care of things in his house. They did things in the yard. They handled all of his stuff while he was there. Then they moved him by ambulance down to Hamilton Point, and he was there for a couple weeks. They came in one day, and they said, we, we've got clearance that you can stay like another month in Hamilton Point down here if you want to stay. Phil said, I have to go back to where my people are. So he came back to Marion, and that's where the people were. Jerry'd pick him up every Sunday and drive him to church and help him painstakingly get out of the car. He had fractured his leg through multiple surgeries. <clears throat> Other people would go into his room and listen to him process. He wrote me one day and he said, I've read several books, but I've never read anything that touches what God's people have said while they sat in this room. What they say is more valuable than things I have read in a book. I asked Phil, what did the body of Christ give you back that you lost? He said, a reason to live. When you lose your wife in one night, you want to die too. And you can't. And the body of Christ got in around me and they helped lift me up, and they have given me another beautiful reason to live. I could go on and on and on about the people in our body that have needed assignment under that cross. I could talk about Mike and Lucinda Reeves, Kyle and Brittany Schmidt, Tim and Sherry Strand. I could talk about layer upon layer of people in our church that when they needed the body of Christ, was there. First question, are you one of those? Are you one who comes alongside other people and you help lift them up? Carry one another's burdens and you fulfill the law of Christ. Paul said, remember to put on compassion, mercy, patience, and above all, love, which binds them together in perfect unity. 